0: Good morning. Today's scripture reading um, is from Psalm 139, verses 1 through 18. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Did we already send the kids away? Are we doing that now or later? Now? Okay. (laughs) We'll send uh, elementary school, uh, dismiss them now to their classes. Uh, Junior high, everyone else obviously stay. My name is Guy and uh, I am one of your elders. And I've been asked to give just a very brief introduction about uh, where Dan's going to be speaking over the next uh, coming weeks. Um, We as an elder board, have been impressed by the weight of contemporary social issues. um, And how they've come to dominate our classrooms, uh, the airwaves, uh, the media, um, discussions everywhere, and even the courts. And uh, I'm talking about issues like uh, sex outside of marriage, uh, gender choice, homosexuality sexual orientation, all of those things, and of course, a hot topic now, abortion. And these can be very divisive issues, there's no doubt about that. But they're only divisive if we, each one of us, apply our own personal set of uh, ideas to them, our thoughts about what's right, what's wrong. Uh, our thoughts about what's acceptable, our own desires, our own preferences, once we lay that on top of those issues, they can become extremely divisive. But God says we are to test all things, our emotions, our actions, our beliefs, our concepts about right and wrong by His word alone. And so we've asked Dan over the next three weeks to address some of these issues and bring to light God's word on those things. Don't be misled. These are not political issues. They're not. They're life issues. They're spiritual issues. And we want to know what God's word says about those. And we're going to challenge everyone, ourselves as well, to examine our ideas about these subjects based on what God's word has
2: to say. Thanks, guy. Um, He also told me if you have any issues with what I'm about to teach, call his cell number. It's 707. (laughs) Needed something to break that up a little bit. Um, Listen, I just got to say, if you're you're new with us, you're like, wait a second, is this normal? Um, If you know anybody who has attended this church for some time, you'll know this isn't normal. Um, Normally, we work through books of the Bible. I was supposed to start the book of Judges this morning. Um, but um, I I submit to the leadership over me, which is a group of of men in the elder board, and I trust their hearts. And so I do this willingly, and I do this with full agreement simply because these are times in which living as Christians can be, in fact, uh, very difficult. And to hear exactly what God has to say about these things. Um, Let me pause and let's just uh, pray. Father in heaven, we come before you as your people and would ask that you would inform our minds and and our hearts, our understanding. Lord, you have created us, you fashioned us, we're yours. You designed us for your glory and for um, for each other. And we pray that you would use this time to um, clarify our thoughts on how you see things, not how we wish to see things. So I I pray this all in Christ's name, and and I just ask your blessing on this um, teaching in Christ's name, amen. And for some reason, you know, it's always tense moments like this that I'm not getting connection in the back. So maybe you can hit the slide thing for me, hit play, and because there are some slides that I think are very important. If not, I have a manuscript, and I'm going to stick close to my notes today because of the topic. As you well know from the news, um, it's likely that Roe versus Wade will be overturned, not for sure, and it's set off a firestorm, and not just a firestorm in culture, but it has increased the temperature, the hostility also against uh, Christian faith. Um, As you've no doubt read, uh, churches have been vandalized and uh, interrupted, in Houston, in Fort Collins, in Los Angeles, and bomb threats at a church in New York. Um, And there's a reason for that because when it comes right down to it, um, Christianity has something very clear to say about this particular situation. Uh, To make matters worse, there's mixed signals being sent with regard regard to the unborn, whether or not it's right or wrong to terminate the life of a child in a mother's womb. On the one hand, we have people who are passionate about the right to terminate that unborn child. Um, Yet at the same time, a person can be prosecuted and convicted of taking the life of an unborn. So to give an example, we've all heard the name of Scott Peterson, um, convicted. And actually I have control now, this is great. Um, And I was watching this on the news and I'm like, can people see the inconsistency, the contradiction maybe even the hypocrisy, you can't have it both ways. He was murdered, he murdered his pregnant wife, and he was convicted of two counts, the murder of his wife and his unborn son. Now, either that child in the womb is a human or it's not a human. You can't have it both ways. It can't be a right and then a crime at the same time. It's lunacy to believe that, which, again, in light of the confusion and the passion and the conflict the question is, what does the Bible have to say about it? How does God see things? And that's what we're going to spend this time this morning just kind of laying out. And let me state the obvious here, just because I can, I can hear some people thinking this. I'm a guy. I'm a male. I have never walked in the shoes of a young woman. That is true. I can't speak firsthand what it's like to feel the isolation, the shame, and the aloneness of being pregnant and not wanting to be there. So, no, I have not walked in the shoes of a young woman, yet at the same time, I would like to say that I can empathize. I have extended family members who have went through abortion. I can imagine what it's like. And regardless of that, um, I think it's important to recognize that what's most important is not the messenger, it's the message. With the exception of Jesus, it's his message, and he is the message. That the truth really is more important than the truth teller. Jesus was never married, so he never walked in the shoes of a married man, and yet he had a lot to say about marriage. Paul, from what we know, never had kids, but he had a lot to say about the raising of children. So just because I haven't walked in the shoes doesn't make what I'm about to say any less true. So I hope you'll hear this. Um, And let me just... (laughs) by way of introduction, tell me, tell you what I do not want or do not intend to do by this teaching. One, I don't intend to lift up or highlight the choice of abortion as the worst sin ever, as if this is the worst, the unpardonable. It's a sin amongst sins. That's not the point. But there have been times over church history where different things have risen to the surface that required their attention. So the humanity of Jesus was brought to the surface in the 2nd and 3rd century, largely because of Gnosticism. In the 4th century, it was the divinity of Jesus, and the church came together and hammered that out. In the 5th century, it was the natures of Jesus. And in the 16th century, it was justification by faith alone. Had to work that through. Well, today, in the swirl of everything going on, this has been brought to the forefront. And we have to be clear on what we believe from the Scripture. So that's the first thing. The second thing. I do not intend to demonize those who hold an opposite view. Christianity is not about demonizing people. Um, people are not our enemy. Um, we're told by Paul, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, that is people, but principalities and powers. What's going on in our cultural and the polarity and the antagonism between the right and the left is unhelpful, hateful, and unloving. The point here is not to demonize, but to clarify educate and hopefully help us to know what it means to love God and love our neighbor better the third thing I do not intend to do by this teaching is to exhume forgiven guilt in our church family I know that there are people who have this written into the story of their life that they look back and they they made the choice to terminate a pregnancy and that is a choice that follows them and right now if that's you You're probably thinking, I don't wanna hear this. Well, listen, if you have embraced the cross of Jesus Christ, then there is now no condemnation for you whatsoever. You're forgiven, so don't let that guilt be unearthed. Rather, let it be covered by the cross and give thanks for the simple fact that God has forgiven not just that sin, but all of our sins, amen? And then fourth, I intend to communicate this as humbly, as accurately, as sensitively, um, and yet truthfully as I can. Um, and hopefully you won't sense any, any attitude of, of self-righteousness or condemnation. Nevertheless, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, then, then we have to submit to what, how He sees this and what He says about this. And it's my job. To bring that to you as a teacher. To fail to do that for me means I'll answer for this on Judgment Day. So, with that said, I think um, a great starting point uh, is just to to ponder for a moment what Peter said in Acts chapter 5. When the powers, the governing powers in Jerusalem said, you need to shut up because this gospel of Jesus is too controversial. And he said this, he said... We must obey God rather than men. doesn't make a difference what culture says, what our president says, our governor says, or what the Supreme Court of the United States says. Bottom line is we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Now that's ballsy. Just to put it right out there. God exalted him at his right hand and leader and savior to give him repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. That is to say, our job is not simply to accept Jesus as savior. It's to submit to him as the king and the Lord and as our sovereign. So with that said, um, let me lay out the what the why, and the how. What Christians have believed from the beginning about this issue, why they believed it, and then finish with how how do we then engage the world around us with this truth? First, the what. What have Christians believed about this issue of abortion or the termination of an unborn child from the beginning? And I'm gonna start in what might seem like an awkward place there is a, a document um, that dates, most scholars believe, to the second half of the first century. It's kind of an ethical, moral manual for Christians or kind of an early catechism. And like I said, it's the second half of the first century, so there would still be apostles alive when this was written. And this document is called the Didache, which is just like a transliteration of a Greek word, didasko, or teaching. And this is what the Didache has to say, again, latter half of the first century, right out of the gate, before there was ever a Vatican or a St. Peter's Basilica, this is what they believed in terms of morality. You shall do no murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not corrupt boys. You shall not commit fornication. You shall not steal. You shall not deal in magic. You shall do no sorcery. You shall not murder a child by abortion, nor kill them when born. You shall not covet your neighbor's goods. In context, there's no other way of reading that than the earliest catechism of the Christian church said, you shall not commit murder by way of abortion. Now, you might say, well, why don't you start in the New Testament, Dan? Why reference this document that was written right after The apostles were on the scene. Well, because it states in the earliest possible time what the early church believed the Bible actually taught. From the very beginning, this isn't something that the church has concocted after Roe v. Wade. This this predates the Roman Catholic Church in the technical term of that name. This is from the very beginning, this is what Christians believed the Bible actually taught. Now, with that said... Let me lay out the why. Why did they come to this conclusion at the very beginning? And I'm going to give you six reasons. The first one, the cornerstone of Christian understanding of humanity, is the value, the unique value of, Christian, or of human life. The unique value of Christian, human life. Right out of the gate, Genesis 1:27, and most of us know this, but it, we just need to be reminded of it. Said, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, both male and female, are imprinted with the image of God. And that is something that's true of no other creature. Not horses, not, not giraffes, not hippos, not, not not elephants. Only one creature is given this image, and that is humanity. It uniquely equips us to represent God's rule on the earth, to reflect his glory and also to live in relationship with him as sons and daughters. And that image is retained even after the fall of man, according to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. We still bear, even though we're distorted and we're sinful, we still bear this mark of God, or as I like to think of it, a a royal mark. God has stamped it on human beings, making human life worth something in an in a way that's altogether different than any other creature. The human life is valuable. This has been the cornerstone of Jewish and Christian theology of humanity. We bear the image of God, which implies that this body we have ultimately is under the authorship of God himself, meaning we do not own our own bodies. This guy standing up here in front of you, I'm a steward of this body. And how I use this body, I'll answer for. So the idea of my body, my choice, really is foreign to the thinking of the Bible. I belong to God, His image is, is on me. So for that reason alone, human life, all human life, from womb to tomb, are sacred. But you add to that one other step. Jesus came to die, spill His blood for image bearers, to reclaim what was lost, to reconcile what had been broken. He spilled his precious blood for image bearers. So human life is sacred by way of creation and redemption. So that's part one. Now you might say, or someone would argue, yeah, but it doesn't explicitly say that applies to unborn life. Okay, let's move to step two. The way in which the biblical language refers to unborn children is the same kind of language used for born children. So we have, for example, Matthew chapter one verse eighteen. And listen, let me just pause and say, I'm happy to talk about this after the fact, Um, and I hope you'll hear all the way through before concluding I don't believe this. You know, we got to learn to listen to each other, not just reject or react, but listen. And maybe coming to church, we shouldn't always be about coming to want to hear what we want to hear, but hearing what we need to hear or should hear. So with that said, back to the point. The unborn are assigned personhood in biblical language. So this is the way Jesus' birth is described, or actually before his birth. The unborn, or excuse me, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. With child. That's a, that's a word that confers or conveys personhood. The same way that we talk about my child is playing Legos or, you know, blocks or playing with Barbies. It's like child. She's with child. Same thing in Luke chapter 1, verse 41. It says, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting, that is, Mary had come, the mother of Jesus, and she was already, he had already been conceived, that is, Jesus. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. It's referred to John the Baptist as the baby in Elizabeth's womb. And at the hearing of Mary's voice, he leaps. But notice, he's called a baby. It's the same exact Greek word that's used to describe Jesus as He's laying there, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. Same word. There's no differentiation. It's referred to with language of personhood. And and don't 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 we know this intuitively? When when the when the when the when the unborn child is desired, we talk about it as a baby, as a he or a she. We say, hey, when is your baby due? We have baby showers, not fetal showers. You know, it's, it's just, that's, that's how it is. And some, we used to make the mistake of saying, hey, when is your baby due? I made that mistake one time, and the lady looked at me, scowled, and says, I'm not pregnant. <laughs> it was a horrible moment. I've never asked that again. But we just think of it naturally and intuitively as a baby. It's not until it's unwanted that we change the language to sanitize it. And refer to it as something other than a personal child or a baby. I think everybody knows intuitively that it's it is what it is, it's human life. So that's that's the second. The unborn are assigned personhood in biblical language. There's the human responsiveness of unborn life. And back to the Luke chapter one, it says, and when Elizabeth heard the great greeting of Mary, the baby leapt. It's like leapt for joy. Now, I don't know what that's like to have a baby in your, your womb, but all of a sudden the leap for joy. That's, that'd scare me. Um, alien moment. Anyway, it's, 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 it's a joyous response. This, is, this baby's responding in the womb to Mary's greeting because she's carrying the Messiah. There's already some sense of response, of human response. So when Rebecca was, was pregnant with uh, Jacob and Esau, twins, it says they, were, they struggled in her. They were having a fight inside of her womb. And in the actual birth process, you find Jacob trying to grab his brother's heel. And that would be a rivalry that would continue well on into adulthood. There's this response happening in the womb. We're told even in modern studies that baby can hear the sound of its mother. And respond. It doesn't know what she's saying. But to music, like all of these things the world tells us around our scientific community says, they do respond. that they have this responsiveness, right in the biblical text. Fourth: an unformed baby is described as a masterpiece, the divine handiwork. The text that was just read by, by Damon, again, just w- worthy of just taking this in. It's not just a lump of tissue. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. You did that, God. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made wonderful all your works. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven. Our world wants to say that's just a natural thing. But we believe by, the, by way of providence that God has set in motion all of these little things and having cells with the right genetic information to differentiate at the right time. One becomes an eye, another arm, another ear, another eardrum, another brain. And to recognize in the formation of a child in the mother's womb is nothing less than a divine masterpiece. It's right here. What's being formed in the mother is nothing less than miraculous. Five, the providential goodness in pregnancy amid sin. Some have said that if the context or the circumstances surrounding the pregnancy are sinful or even criminal, then that justifies the termination of the baby. We can't be selective in how we understand or apply providence. The providence is the belief that God has a purpose in everything. We say there are no accidents. And we say things like God brings beauty out of ashes. That he brings life out of death. That he brings good out of evil. He brings salvation out of the crucifixion of his own son. And that that is kind of woven into the Lineage of Jesus, three women are, are, are named. There are more than, I think there might be a fourth, but three in particular are significant. Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba, although Bathsheba is not mentioned by name. She's referred to indirectly as the wife of Uriah the Hittite. But all three of these women got pregnant under sinful circumstances, So read the story of Tamar. She dressed up as a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law. That's messed up. Well, her and her father-in-law, because her husband had died, got pregnant and had a baby. And that baby became one of the ancestors of the Messiah. You have Rahab, arguably the prostitute, a Canaanite prostitute. She gave birth to a baby who is in the line of the Savior of the world. Of course, there's Bathsheba. She's the woman who was taken by David. He committed adultery, and they ended up having another child, and that became part of the lineage of Jesus. God brings wonderfully beautiful things out of horrible circumstances. We don't know if the unborn child that a person is carrying will go on to Find a cure for cancer, a disease, save soldiers on a battlefield, bring the gospel to a foreign country? We don't know that. Only God does. So we trust in the providence of God that he has good purposes, even when things start off on the wrong foot. And then the sixth and final point in terms of why. And that is how we understand from the Bible, love. Love. Love is, is not just about me, not me putting me first. It's about, it's an others' orientation. It's about considering others above yourself. I mean, that's explicitly laid out in so many texts, but here's one. It's just 1 John 3.16, not to be confused with John 3.16, 1 John. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The very definition of love is self giving and self sacrifice. Laying down your life for another person, being sacrificial, considering their well being more than your own. Our world right now, and the way everything is being spun, is that it's the self that's the most important. It's the me that's the most important that needs to be considered, not the life of another, AKA an unborn human. It seems to me that what's happening now is a violation of the very essence of what it means to love. To love is to put the other first. Even at my own expense, I don't know of a single parent, and I'm sure they're out there, who wouldn't give their life for their son or daughter that was born. Why not the unborn if there's no difference? So here you have six pieces of evidence and why I think the early church decided right out of the gate, we can't do this for the sake of love, for the sake of humanity, for the sake of God. So here you have the what and the why. Now the question is, how do we we respond as Christians in a way that doesn't demonize people, that doesn't condemn people, or come across as self-righteous? Obvious one. If what I said is true, and, and, if, and if you don't know if it's true, can I just tell you to pray about it, think about it, talk about it? And if you disagree with me at the end of the day, or you disagree with Christianity at the end of the day, I, I will still be your friend. I'll still have coffee with you. We may disagree on something very substantive, but we can still be friends. But we have to stand firm, firm in the truth. We can't allow the pressures of society and culture and power mow over what we believe to be true. We have to know that there's a, there's, a, there's a high king that stands so far above any court in this land. And it's his view that matters. It's not what culture sees. It's not what the government sees. It's not what SCOTUS sees that's important. It's what God sees and how he sees things we just have to be clear on what we believe and stand firm but stand firm with humility that is a demonstrable authentic humility that recognizes that hey you know what i have my own sins that i've had to deal with and i continue to struggle with we all share the simple fact that we were saved by grace alone and we were all sinful and are continuing to struggle with sin that means that we exercise extreme humility in our belief system even our belief is a gift of grace alone we didn't arrive at it on our own he gave it to us second speak the truth in love we got to be verbal about it I'm not saying be combative or harsh just when we find an opportunity to say what we believe we should especially in personal conversation Probably within your lifetime, you'll at least have one opportunity to talk with somebody who's contemplating terminating the life of their unborn. And in that moment, if you know what you believe and you know what love would do, you have to speak, because they are at a crossroads. A crossroads that will not only impact the future of that baby's life, but the future of the mother's psychological well-being, too. That's something you'll never hear in secular news is the ongoing psychological trauma that the mother carries with her because she knows she aborted a child. I think I was in high school maybe college. I watched a woman stand up at a pulpit and she shared with her whole church. She said, "When I was a young woman I got pregnant and I terminated the life of my baby." She said it to a whole group I, and it was such a, a moment for me that I still remember what she, you know, where she was standing. I'm like, wow, that's, that's courageous. And she also shared with us the simple fact that though it happened a long time ago, she carried the guilt of that like an anchor. Since then, I've, I've met so many Christians who have shared with me that that's part of their past, that part of their story. And never once have I ever heard someone say, you know, I'm glad I did it. You'll never hear about the ongoing psychological effects. Some I know have, have turned to the bottle and turned to pills, even trying to take their own life. So don't let anybody tell you that it's the easy way out. Maybe short term. Long term, it's horrible. So when we give an opportunity to, to speak in love and humility about the wonder of unborn life. We're loving not only the baby, but we're loving the mom too. We love them both. It's not unloving to say that. That's the lie. It's loving to care about the future well-being of a mom. Third, there's only four. <laughs> Apply the gospel of grace when there's Failure. The beautiful thing about Christianity is there's redemption. There's forgiveness. The gospel says we were all once children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. The same lady who stood up and confessed to the whole church that she had abortion in her background also shared that when she came to Christ, she experienced genuine healing. A healing in the soul that no amount of secular psychology or pharmaceuticals can do. That's the power of the gospel, to free a person from the, from the weight of sin. To know that God has taken my iniquity and separated it from me as far as the east is from the west. To live in the freedom. Christianity offers that. Nothing else does. That's the beauty of the gospel. Apply the gospel in times of failure. This is good news, not bad news. And then finally, this is the last, is find ways to advocate for life. Find ways to advocate for life. This is a serious issue. It's obviously at the epicenter of things right now. It's not the only human issue. We have homelessness. We have orphans. We have young women being trafficked. We have people who are dying in, 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 in assisted living, all of whom are living beings, all of whom bear the mark of the image of God, and all who deserve our love. Find ways to, to advocate for life. Some people in here have adopted. Others have taken in foster kids. Others have gotten involved in the whole trafficking thing, because all life matters. It does matter. You can pray. Pray for our Supreme Court justices. Pray for our leaders. Pray that God would would renew the gospel power in our culture, so people actually want to do what they should do. You can get involved in a great ministry like Alpha Pregnancy Resource Center, which is an amazing ministry to um, pregnant women, and it's not they are not um, self righteous or combative. They they believe in help, hope, and healing. If if it's part of your story, if 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 abortion is part of the story that God has providentially allowed into your life, can I just encourage you to use it to help others at the right time and at the right place? Life matters. Whatever whatever we do, we have to learn to engage, advocate for life, because every single human being from womb to tomb are created in the image of God. Interesting times to be a Christian, isn't it? To love is going to cost us something. It always does. Sometimes just simply stating a fact or a truth is going to get you in trouble. But I I pray and I hope that the church will be solid in the truth of who we as humans are and how best to love those around us with courage and humility. Amen. Father, I just commit this church body to you and ask you to be our light and our guide. We ask that you would create in us a genuine sense of loving, thankful submission to you and your word. I pray that you grant us tangible avenues by which we can be a part of your loving work and your gospel advancement in our culture and our world. But I do pray, Lord, that you'd help the church to stand firm in the truth of how you see things, not how we want to see
0: things. In Christ's name.